I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com Welcome to Cooking Issues from the Heritage Radio Network, coming to you live every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45. I'm Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, here with Nastasha, the Hammer Lopez, the Hammer of Cooking Issues, uh, here to set me straight, keep me honest. Uh, Call in all of your cooking-related questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So uh, today's uh, show is brought to you by uh, Sam Edwards from S. Wallace Edwards Corporation. I have actually a little a story to relate about that. I was coming home from Thanksgiving. Uh, I, you know, I take the train uh, from my mom's house in Westchester, uh, just north of New York, down to Grand Central, stopped at the Murray's Cheese Shop and saw what might be the mess, best marbled ham I've ever seen produced by an American corporation. And it was one of Sam Edwards' uh, one of his hams, and I, t- I took it home. It was incredibly delicious. I've known Sam Edwards for several years, actually, because I've been kind of a, a ham nut for a, for a long time. So uh, a couple of problems with the, with the ham. It's not marketed under his actual brand name. It's marketed as uh, Surrey Farms, and I don't really... Surrey Farms, I don't really, I never knew. So if you go to Murray's Cheese in New York or you see something marketed as uh, Surrey Farms, it's actually uh, an S. Wallace Edwards ham. And then uh, I, I emailed him. I was like, well, what's the deal? I've never seen an American ham that's, uh, that's you know, so well marbled. And uh, he told me that he was actually getting the pigs from Patrick here at Heritage Foods. What do you think about that, Nastasha? It's pretty cool, right? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so a uh, delicious product. Uh, we fully support Sam Edwards and his attempt to – because I've always said well, – I think I've talked about it on this program before – that uh, American ham is delicious and we have our own uh, traditions and you know, there's, no, there's, there's no reason that Americans should try to pretend to be something else. We have our own delicious country ham and we have for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a, a unique cultural – uh, product, uh, so I'm a, I'm a hu- huge supporter of it. And my my one gripe has always been that although our cure masters are as good as any cure masters in the world, and by the way, we're still in the construction zone here at Roberta's Pizzeria. So if you hear any hammer drilling in the background, no one is attempting to break into the studio and murder us. It's just normal construction going on. Anyway, so I've always said that the, one of the main problems isn't the cure masters themselves or the techniques they use, but the quality of pork available to most ham cures here in the U.S. as opposed to those available to, let's say, the Spanish. Uh, And so Sam Edwards, uh, as well as Edwards, is trying to change that, uh, partially by getting some material from Patrick at Heritage Foods, the uh, founder of our radio network. So anyway, so kudos to Sam Edwards. Now, on to cooking issues proper. 
So uh, some of you who listen to the show regularly might remember that uh, several weeks ago, maybe even a month ago now, uh, I issued a challenge that uh, if someone could produce a raw chocolate bar that didn't make me want to throw up when I ate it, that, that even res- remotely resembled real chocolate uh, or you know tasted good, that I would eat raw food for uh, a week. Well, I have an update to that challenge. But before I get to that update, uh, uh, we have a caller in the yes, session? We, we have a caller. All right, caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dick. Howdy. Uh, this is Colin Gore down in Washington, D.C. Howdy. And, yeah, I had a, I guess, not exactly cooking-related, I mean, you know, in the, in the aura of cooking, but not directly related question this time. Um, I'm actually in a Ph.D. program in the material science department at University of Maryland. Nice. And we are building a seminar series for the upcoming semester. And uh, I was wondering if you knew, had any contacts at PIC Gums, because I'm interested in trying to get someone from there to talk uh, to us, give a kind of presentation that's a little science-sick, but also kind of cool and interesting. All right. Well, TIC Gums, for those of you that don't know what the heck we're talking about, TIC Gums is a major manufacturer of hydrocolloids, which, uh, again, for those of you who still don't know what the hell I'm talking about, hydrocolloids are a group of kind of uh, thickeners and gelling agents that in the past were used almost exclusively by industrial uh, concerns to make foods uh, cheaper or ship better or last longer when they're frozen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but in the past 10 years or so, have really been used by uh, chefs to try and either achieve special effects or increase quality. So there's been a major shift in these ingredients from uh, being seen as additives to being seen as legitimate ingredients in, in uh, high cuisine. So TIC Gums is a major manufacturer of this, and their and their uh, headquarters is in Maryland somewhere. I think it's somewhere near Beltsville, right? Or are, are they in Pennsylvania? Yeah. I always forget. Yeah, anyway, they're... they're no, they're in Maryland a little bit, a little bit northwest of Baltimore, northeast of Baltimore. Oh, yeah, okay. And I've, I've supposed to have been visited, I've supposed to have visited there many times. My main, and what's interesting about them also, for those of you listening out there, they will sell to individuals. They're one of the few manufacturers that uh, for some reason takes an interest in, in this, and they have what's called, or at least they used to, uh, a chef's kit that you could buy stuff from them. And so, and it's TIC gums, and you can go to them. The, the unfortunate thing about TIC gums is that all of their products have horrific names like Saladizer 210S and Tickaloid and you know, all these, all these like horrible sounding, they sound like parasites, diseases, and insects, but um, they make really good products. The other thing about them is that they, they are uh, they're a blender. They are a, a gum blender, a solution provider. So they don't provide straight up raw materials the way, let's say, Dow Chemical would. They blend their own uh, proprietary mixtures and their own sources, and they sell them. So they won't tell you exactly what's in their mixture, which is the other interesting thing. But the main thing with, and I'm going to answer your question. I'm just explaining to everyone else who doesn't know what TIC gums is. The uh, TIC gums, well, the one we use most is a product called saladizer, either the 210S or the 310S, and this is something actually that anyone should have around their house. It's a mixture of gum arabic and xanthan gum, both natural ingredients, and it's uh, fantastic at stabilizing uh, you know, emulsions, oil water emulsions uh, uh, for later uh, to, to dilute later. So we use it to make simple syrups with oils and fats in them, salad dressings, sauces. It's fantastic stuff. It goes in cold. It's really easy to use. It's not too, you know, finicky. So that, that's the part of theirs we use the most. Now the downside. I no longer have a real contact on the East Coast. My old contact, Scott Riefler, moved to be the West Coast and uh, Asia uh, rep for TIC Gums. But... 
They have a hotline called Gum Guru, and uh, if, if you email us, I will try to remember, although if anyone's ever met me, I'm horrible at, at email, but um, they're all really nice people down there, and I'm sure they'd be happy. If you find, I don't have his contact info anymore, but if you call Scott uh, Riefler out on the West Coast, he might to say who because he's a really good guy and interesting he used to give the culinary talks on the east coast so if you uh, contact him he might know who his current you know incarnation on the east coast would be because it would be an easy easy trip for them but yeah tic gums good people yeah all right thanks a lot no problem you know, I'll follow up with that and, uh... yeah so if you need any more help again contact us most likely a question on the blog is the best way to get a, a, a response because that's the only thing i'm kind of guaranteed to respond to but you know, they're, they're good people, and I'm sure they'll, they'll respond. And actually, for those of you out there who have gum questions, like they're one of the few companies that if you ask them uh, for a problem to it, you know, a solution to a particular problem, like I have XYZ salad dressing, it has these uh, situations, which product do you recommend? They will, unlike most companies, they will actually get back to you with an answer. It's a, they have a, 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 what's it called, system? System. Called Gum Guru uh, on their TIC Gums website. So it's a good, good, uh, good place to go, a good resource and uh, find people. No. All right, well, thanks, think- for, thanks for your question. Uh, okay, now back to uh, the uh, raw, food, raw food challenge. So what I said was, is that if someone could produce a raw food, a raw chocolate that was even remotely delicious at all, and really that didn't leave a bad aftertaste in my mouth, that I would eat uh, raw food uh, exclusively for a week. Now, uh, Nastasha is here not just to hammer on you people, but to, uh, although she never actually does that, but, uh, uh, but to keep me honest, and uh, one of my interns, Grace, who actually has her final today, she's going to graduate to French culinary, we're going to lose another fine intern, actually several, uh, we're losing Piper as well, another fine intern, um, she brought some, do uh, you remember the brand name, Nastasha? No, I don't remember. Some raw, it's like, you know, it comes in some sort of craft paper, crunchy label thing from Whole Foods Market, and it costs like $1,000 a bar or something like that. But I ate it, and I wasn't revolted, right? Right, yeah. Right. So it looks like I'm, I might have to actually do this, because if there's, if there's anything on earth I hate, it's, uh, it's a welcher, right? You, you know, you're someone who welches on bets, you know, you could be a serial killer. I could find something redeeming about you. But someone who welches on, that's not really true. Someone who welches on bets is like, you know, that's like... Like the worst thing in the world, right? Right. It, it's terrible, right? For you, yeah. Well, for you too, no? You like a welcher? I don't like... It doesn't occur to me. What? I haven't dealt with a lot of them. That's because they're universally reviled and hated. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Uh, so... So I can't welch on this. So now I, I had a couple of outs. I gave myself a couple of outs in this bet because I said that not you only... Did? Yes, I did. If you remember... I said not only does it have to be delicious, but it has to actually be raw. And there is a lot of res- there are a lot of people out there who basically say there is no such thing as raw as raw cocoa beans um, because of the processing that they go through on the way. They all go above this kind of magic temperature of 108 degrees Fahrenheit, where all enzymes are supposed to be destroyed. Before I go on, a little rant about that. Not all enzymes are de- – first of all, there are enzymes that are destroyed below 118, and there are many, many enzymes that last well, 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 well above 118 degrees Fahrenheit. And how fast an enzyme is denatured is not only a function of temperature, but a function of temperature and time. So to think there's some sort of magic brick wall at 118 degrees Fahrenheit where no enzymes can pass through that brick wall is absurd. I mean – Beyond absurd, ridiculous, has how much basis in science? Zero. Zero, zero basis in science. Um, now, that's one thing about raw food. Second thing about it is I don't know why enzymes – like why, why should I preserve an enzyme in, 
in, in a food. I, I have not seen a, a, a paper yet that tells me what the benefit is of preserving all the, all the enzymes in the food. Now, I'm willing to be proven wrong on this. Like anything else, I'm willing to be proven wrong. Um, but, you know, first of all, a lot of enzymes are going to be deactivated in the gut anyway. Not all of them, but many of them are going to be deactivated uh, in the gut. Many enzymes are bad. You know, they do damaging things to you. Not all enzymes are little beneficent proteins that are like wandering around your body only fixing things that went wrong. So uh, I, I, I don't understand really the whole premise behind raw food either. But that is not – that is neither here nor there. The, the, the fact of the matter is I said that I would – do it, and I know many fine people. That, that's exactly. It's like the the uh, the first the first defense of a prejudiced person, right? I know many fine raw food people, but anyway, <laughs> it's true. I know many fine raw food people, uh, but I I promised I'd do it, so so I will. Um, now, but I have to to research. It. Oh, the out, the out. Sorry. Uh, so yeah, chocolate turns out that ninety nine percent of the according to the data that I could gather, which may or may not be true, uh, you know, ninety nine percent of the stuff labeled raw chocolate in uh, in markets in food markets is in fact not raw because there is almost no one out there with processing equipment to actually produce the cocoa butter. So even if you obtained raw, completely raw, like controlled fermentation so the fermentation never went 100 above 118 which is possible um you know although not likely but possible uh, and never been roasted so it's not going to develop any of the roasted flavors that you would get to make chocolate you'd have to express cocoa butter to add cocoa butter back to uh, even if you were using just grinding raw raw nibs you'd have to add cocoa butter back to it to get the chocolate consistency and the cocoa butter that's pressed is pressed in such a way that the temperature basically uh you know has to get above uh you know 118 degrees fahrenheit using the equipment that's out there. So um, most people who are providing uh, um, you know, these products to the raw food manufacturers probably are misrepresenting what they're, what they're providing. And this is the data that I've been able to gather on the internet. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting guy by the name of Ben Ripple. Ben Ripple has a thing called uh, Big Tree Farms out in Bali. And I've seen him present a couple of times. I met him, although he, he would never remember this, at a Taste 3, which is a, uh, an event that a, you know, the Mondavi, the TED conferences used to have along with, you know, with Mondavi. And I spoke at it a couple of times, and Ben Ripple spoke at it. Uh, and uh, his deal is, is that he wants he, – he goes to like, poor farmers in Bali and other you know, places over there and uh, wants to get them some money for their product. And so as far as I can tell, he doesn't really care so much personally about raw food, but he sees it as a niche market where he can – all of a sudden raise the value of these products that his farmers are producing by producing a very specialty product for a very niche market where he's not competing with bigger growers or you know bigger countries, bigger industrial concerns. So he's been a supplier of raw cashews for a long time, true raw cashews, and he spent a lot of time and energy trying to produce a true raw uh, chocolate. So apparently if you get your cocoa products from uh, – Big Tree Farms, which is Ben Ripple's corporation, you have a guaranteed certified uh, raw product. I don't know what the heck the price is. Apparently, it's a lot, lot higher than most of the raw, uh, raw, you know, chocolate products that are out there. Uh, and I think he's a raw, you know, he supplies two manufacturers. But so anyway. I don't know whether the one I got was real or not, but it's weak to try and get out of it just by saying that it probably wasn't actually a raw chocolate. So we're going to do it, uh, which means that I won't be eating the family meal You're at the French culinary. Well, me and my family, because oh. who, who else cooks at my house? Oh. Yeah, nobody. Now, here's the thing. Now, do we have a uh, – the, the, here's the, do I follow raw food just based on 118, in which case I can have sashimi, right? Or do – I mean most raw food people are also like vego vegan style folk, right? Now, if I <laughs> – 
you know, I'm, what I'm saying is, is that to be raw food doesn't necessarily mean I have to go vegetarian, right? I mean, not that I could go veg- vegetarian for a week is not a problem. Vegan for a week might be a problem. Uh, the problem is, is that I'd have to find unpasteurized milk, and you can't. It's hard to buy it here in New York. If you can get to there's certain farms you can buy direct from farms, but here in New York City, it's difficult to get unpasteurized milk. So I couldn't have unpasteurized milk. Um, but I mean, I don't see any reason why I can't have shashim- uh, sashimi, right? Nastasha, do you see any reason? No. Or carpaccio. I can't have Parmesan with my carpaccio, though, because the curd from uh, Parmesan cheese is cooked to a, a higher temperature than 118 Fahrenheit during the curding process. So I couldn't have Parmesan with my carpaccio, which might, which might ruin it for me, because really that's the taste of carpaccio anyways, the, is the Parmesan and the olive oil. So uh, also – so. That's the first question. Do I follow their rules or just the 118-degree rule? That's the first question I have to figure out. The second thing is I have to plan this for a long time because I'm definitely not going to buy any BS raw food product off the shelf that's just some hyper-processed uh, crap that has like n- not doesn't have a good taste where the only criteria for its manufacture was that it had never been heated because I hate products like that. I'm also not going to have any substitute products, no, no – you know. Raw food product pretending to be something that's cooked, right? The, the, the challenge is can I make everything truly freaking delicious, right? Truly delicious and also raw and wanting to be what it is instead of an imitation of something else. That's the real challenge. So it's going to probably take me a month or so to figure out a good week's worth of recipes, learn a whole bunch of techniques. I'm going to have to read every raw food cookbook there is. Um, you know, I've read Sarma's, uh, one of Sarma Melangais' cookbooks. And, you know, she's, she's nice. She's nice. Maybe I can call her and ask for some advice if she'll still talk to me because I was supposed to help her with a bunch of dehydrator pro- projects she was working on and we never got back to her. Remember that, Nastasha? Yes. Yeah. So if she'll still if she'll still take my calls, I'll call her and try and uh, and try and work on that. But uh, I'm going to shoot for a goal somewhere in probably February or something. You know, since that's such a crappy month anyway, and we'll do a raw food uh, we'll do a raw food week. Nastasha, you going to eat any of this or no? Sure, I'll I'll do it with you if it happens. Really? I'll do it with you if it happens. Mm-hmm. What do you mean if it happens? You calling me a welcher? Yes. Jeez, <laughs> I just told you that the worst thing in the world is yeah. a welcher. Anyway, all right. So we're going to go to our first commercial break, but call in all of your questions to 718-497-2128, 718-497-2128, cooking you issues. Feel, you feel good? Feeling good. You feel good? so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I feel all right. I call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, fella? Hey, yeah. Sure getting down. Look at him. We're going to have... Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues, along with Natasha Lopez, here from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Call in all your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Have a question in from Paul. Uh, says, hi, Dave. It's well known that baking soda can be used to speed up Maillard reactions and browning. Is this just about pH or is there something else at work? Uh, and then... Um, 
Is there anything that can be used to slow down such reactions, Maillard reactions? For reasons not worth going into, I'd like to be able to keep simple broths and soups safely warm for up to 18 hours. Naturally, they begin to deteriorate after this long, especially those with vibrant vegetable colors. Any tips or suggestions of something I could throw in? Thanks, Paul. Now, I'm going to have to break this down a little bit. Uh, and, you know, I know, Paul, you probably don't have the time to call in during the show, but this is something I'd really like to kind of figure out exactly uh, what, what you mean here. Maillard reactions, right, are the browning reactions that are, um, you know, that t- typically go on. They're, they're uh, very complicated, but they have to do with re- reducing sugars, certain kinds of sugars in, in proteins, usually uh, in the, well, always in the presence, of, not always, but usually in the presence of heat, right? Typically higher heats. So we associate kind of toasty brown bread, you know, bread flavors, brown flavors, cooked flavors, and uh, a lot of the flavors on the outside of roasted meats and things like that are Maillard uh, style flavors, right? And, you know, the brown on French fries, the crispy skin, all that. These are things we associate with, with Maillard. These um, reactions are indeed speeded up by um, the addition of alkaline ingredients. So, for instance, pretzels, famously pretzels, are cooked in, in alkaline water um, before they're baked to increase uh, the, the browning in them, and they also give a characteristic kind of alkaline taste. Um, now, uh, also, egg whites will brown if cooked for a long time, even though they're not cooked at a very, very high temperature because egg whites are alkaline, so the Maillard reaction is speeded up in it. And that's, the, that's the, you know, the, the thing behind hamine eggs, these eggs that are cooked for a long time and turn brown. And so at the school, you know, we do a lot of cooking with eggs in pressure cookers, and the eggs turn brown because of Maillard reactions. So yes, basic conditions, alkaline conditions, which baking soda will produce, uh, do speed up um, browning reactions. Now, that's not the same browning reaction that happens in a, in a vegetable soup. So if you're doing a broth with vegetables, in it. And I presume you mean green vegetables, right? Green vegetables we're talking about. So if you're doing a, like a vibrant green vegetable color, those right are not broken down because of Maillard reactions, right? So like an herb, uh, an herb, a blended herb, for instance, is breaking down because of an enzymatic reaction. So you can stop those things from going brown initially by destroying the enzymes. Now the, 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 the problem is is that then further browning uh, and kind of olive dravenous takes on because the chlorophyll in those vegetables is being destroyed because there's there's a magnesium uh, that's inside of the chlorophyll the magnesium gets displaced by a hydrogen ion usually uh, in the presence of an, of an acid right or over long you know long cooking times and that causes the chlorophyll to brown and you lose the vibrancy of the color right so I'm trying to figure out exactly which you know which one of these reactions you're worried about now Adding something basic like uh, like you know baking soda or something to a green vegetable broth or puree should preserve the chlorophyll. Now, one of the reasons not to add um, you know a, you know baking soda to if you're cooking let's say green beans or broccoli to the water, one of the reasons against it is because although the, the green is going to be very well preserved because the, the magnesium is not going to get displaced from the chlorophyll, is that they go mushy very very quickly because the other effect that's going on is that the cell Cell walls of these vegetables are made up of pectin and hemicellulose, and the pectin, right, is um, is very resistant to breaking down uh, in alkaline uh, in uh, acid conditions, but breaks down very very readily in in alkaline conditions. So you add baking soda to water and you get very green, mushy vegetables. You add acid to the cooking water and you get olive drab 
uh, very you know firm vegetables. So it's like you can't win. But if you're doing a puree, right, then you don't care about the fact that it's going to be mushy because you're going to puree the sucker anyway. So you might as well add a pinch of baking soda. You just got to make sure that you don't get any off taste. And this should help preserve the green color for a lot longer. Now, also, the other thing is that if you store your, um, your, your soups at a lower temperature – you should be able to preserve uh, the color faster. Now, I haven't done any controlled test of storing a broth that's not uh, cl- uh, not a chlorophyll-based broth. I haven't really done a controlled test on any of this. This is just off the top of my head. But uh, it would be interesting to do a um, do a test where we um, stored just in an open vein, a, you know, a soup at you know seventy degrees C, let's say for. 12 hours to see what happened to it. I don't know how much more appreciable browning you would get, other than maybe you're also getting an increased browning during uh, during evaporation, like a concentration. I'd have to see, but I, I'm kind of interested in the problem. So if you email another question into the radio, maybe more specifically like what recipe you're dealing with and exactly kind of what's going wrong, I'd love to take a look at it because it seems like an interesting problem, right, Nastasha? Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, but that led me to another thing is that I did some uh, more research on one of the products that we like to use uh, is a stuff called uh, Thai red lime paste. And Thai red lime paste is basically limestone. And I always thought that it was naturally red. Uh, and there's been very little up till now that I've been able to find in the way of English language references on this Thai ingredient other than it's used in uh, soups and banana – like this banana soup to preserve the cell wall of the banana. This goes back to the, the mushiness, right? So um, – so what we do is we, we use this Thai red lime paste, which you can get in an Asian grocery store. You put it into water, you shake it up, it settles out, and you use that water. We vacuum inject it into bananas, and it makes the bananas stay firm even when you cook it. So you can make like a bananas foster, but the bananas, they taste cooked and delicious and sweet, but they don't get mushy. And you can also beat the crap out of them in the pan without them breaking apart. So it's one of our favorite recipes. We've been doing it for years. I do it all the time. I love it. Bang, 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 right? But I haven't really found up till now any English language references on it. I always assumed that the, the stuff was uh, – natural uh you know that naturally read but i found finally an english language blog called she simmers and it's written by someone named leela but i don't know her last name and uh she said that the red is actually turmeric that they add to it although i don't i don't know if that's true or false i don't know but that's what she said and she also made some interesting points that it's it, that the thai red lime and i hadn't thought about this before is basically calcium uh calcium hydroxide you know lime which is the same stuff that's used for nixtalamization right which is the you know the process used to turn corn into masa and hominy by soaking in an alkaline condition and i've been wanting to go get cal which is what they use in mexico to do this for a long time and we've had it in our fridge the entire for all these years we've had the nixtalamization Optimalizing product in our fridge in the form of Thai red lime paste for years and years, and we've never done it. So we're going to have to run our nixtamalization experiments with the Thai red lime, see, see what we get out of it. Um, but she also says something very interesting, which is that if you add it to fry batters, right, the fry batter stays crispy after it's been fried for a long time, a lot longer than it would if you just used regular water in the batter. So I'm going to try to do some tempura batters with this Thai red lime and see whether we can get a batter that does indeed blind taste crispier with this versus not because I was not able to find any papers, any, you know, any scientific papers on adding alkaline uh, ingredients to, uh, to batters to try and, in, you know, increase their crispiness. I wasn't able to find it. Um, so I don't know. I'm going to do some research. That's something that, you know, 
could be very, very, very interesting. But it's, you know, it's more crap we have to do. What do you think, Nastasha? Yes, good stuff. Yes, good stuff. <laughs> but this brings me back to the other point about the about the uh, this stuff, this uh, lime, is that being calcium and being hydroxide, it's both alkaline but has calcium present. And uh, and what does calcium do to cell walls? She's been Calcium strengthens the pectin, right? So in the presence of uh, a lot of calcium, you're going to cross-link the um, you're going to cross-link the, uh, the the pectin in there, and it's going to be resistant to breaking down either by heat or or anything else. And so what I'm wondering is, is if you use calcium hydroxide as your addition to the boiling water, can you get a vegetable that stays green and is also crunchy? So that is another round of experiments we have to run. I was not able to find anything on that either. But now I only searched for half an hour or so, uh, which is part of the reason that I literally ran in here panting with my hands frozen off uh, about 10 seconds before the radio show started, much to Nastasha's uh, chagrin. Uh, the other reason was I couldn't find any gloves on the way out, and that's why I, you know, my hands, I feel like I could crack them with a hammer, and they break into tiny little pieces. But – um, so a lot of interesting uh, experiments were brought up by your question about uh, vegetables and broths and uh, Maillard and keeping things green. Uh, anyway, uh, since it's, uh, it's about time, we'll go to our second commercial break. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, Cooking Issues. How you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good? Feeling good. It's so much bone. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Still time to call in your questions to 718-497-2128. So we got a question from Kurt. That he had a question about egg substitute, and uh, he says as his grandparents have gotten older, he started to watch salt, fat, and cholesterol in their diets much more. Although I have to tell you that contrary to health, like if I get old enough, I'm going to eat nothing. Of course, I already eat nothing but fats and all this stuff. Anyway, if I make it to that age, I'm definitely going to start loading up on all the stuff people tell me not to eat. Uh, <clears throat> but – uh, they've tried to use egg substitute and are generally happy with the result in omelets and scrambled eggs, but less so in baking. Can you tell me more about what is in egg substitute as well as uh, when it is appropriate to use instead of egg? Now, the only thing I know much about egg substitutes is egg substitutes uh, – 
you know, like actual straight up single ingredients that are used to substitute for certain properties in eggs, right? So it looks like you're talking about an egg substitute that can literally be substituted for an egg in like an omelet. I'm more used to dealing with products that are substitutes for eggs, uh, like in, in in baking, where you know you say, okay, I have an egg protein that needs to hold something in a, in a specific you know way. So like I need to imitate the foaming properties of egg white, let's say. So then I would say, okay, then I know what to add. I'm going to add some comp, uh, something like a xanthan for thickening, and I'm going to add some sort of aeration agent like a methylcellulose, a versa whip, something like that, right? So like that kind of stuff I know about, or you know, xanthan to hold things together, or you know, either in gluten or in egg replacing recipes, uh, or you know, I need something that's going to provide the emulsification of egg yolk. So I'm going to add probably soy lecithin or something like that. Like these are <clears throat> these are things that I kind of like understand, um, but. Like straight up egg replacer, I don't have a lot of um, a lot of information on off the top of my head. So I'm gonna. But the thing is, do we have a way to actually make sure that I look this up before next week's uh, radio st- uh, show yeah, or if not? You keep the question. Yes. Keep, so we'll just we'll pump it over into next week's questions. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's something I'm I'm interested in looking. I'm trying to figure out like what they could make you know that actually looks like an egg on the plate that works like an egg on the plate and why it wouldn't work in baking. So this is something I'm willing to uh, investigate further and deserves more time than I uh, was able to give it this week, Kurt. So I will uh, check up on that. Nastasha will pump that question over onto the next week. And another one I got that was kind of difficult from uh, Scott Kolarik is um, – uh, you know, we talked, I think, a little bit on the Thanksgiving episode about the dragon's beer candy, the Poshmark, right? Didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. And so in that recipe, uh, you know, in, this goes to cooking candies. Um, in that recipe, you add acid at the beginning of the recipe, and what happens is is that the, the longer it cooks, the acid uh, continues to what's called invert the sugar. It breaks the sucrose, which is a disaccharide, down into two monosaccharides, um, and that reaction is sped up by the presence of acid. So the longer you cook in the presence of acid, the more you break the sugar down into uh, – the sucrose down into, into uh, you know, glucose and fructose, and that has the um, – those sugars don't harden up the same way when, when the sugar cools down, when the sugar syrup cools down, and so you end up getting a softer product. The longer it cooks, the softer it is. Uh, so um, Scott was working for a chocolatier, or is working for a chocolatier uh, part-time, or, or as a chocolatier, I should say, and uh, he's told that the faster you cook a caramel to a certain temperature, the softer the product will be. So it's the exact opposite of what we've, what we've been, uh, you know, what we have with regular sugar syrups, right? Uh, and so uh, he says, I understand that the, the temperature in a candy is uh, a function of boiling water off so that as long as the accurate final temperature is reached, right, the product would be the same. And this is something I think I probably also said on that on that thing is that – because uh, I remember we also had a question on caramels or something like that. And it's true that uh, if you cook to if, – if, if the only ingredients are sugar and water – and this is why maybe if I was talking about caramels last time, I have to look it up. You know, I probably spoke too soon. If the only ingredients are sugar and water, right? Then the final temperature is strictly a function of uh, of of you know how much water is in there, right? So no matter what, you know, the the, the water content is going to be the same once you reach uh, the final the final temperature. Uh, and that may or may not be true if other ingredients are in there and changing, so and so altering the boiling point. Uh, like if things break down and become soluble or no longer soluble, then they w- will or they will no longer affect the boiling point. I don't know how much that's going to affect the temperature, right? Um, now, 
The other problem is, is that there's a lot of stuff in a caramel. There's milk solids, there's fats, there's all these other things. And each one of those right, affects the final texture of your caramel. And uh, I downloaded a couple scholarly articles but didn't have a chance to necessarily wade, wade through them. And I'm trying to fig- I was trying to figure out why it is that cooking it for longer um, is going to make it, uh, make it harder. And I haven't found any yet except for to say that, you know, that, that the sugar is only the, – the, the sugar and how much it's cooked is only one of the things that's affecting the texture. Like something that's going on, as you said, with the, with the milk, uh, milk solids might be a, a factor. Like if you cook the milk solids too quick or they don't get converted enough, that might affect the texture. Something going on with the fat, although I doubt it, might affect the texture uh, based on that. You know, you had posited that, you know, there was one cook that you, that used to work at this chocolatier where he used to cook uh, very, very quickly and he always had to cook to a higher temperature because his caramels were coming out too hard, uh, too, what you say, too soft. So he needed to cook them, no, sorry, too hard. Anyway, again, getting all, bam, you know, confused. But the, um, the point is, is that I would guess that if you cook it really quickly, you'd liable to go to a higher temperature anyway. Uh, you know, I, I think it would be unusual where cooking something faster means you got to a lower temperature because I would think that you'd have hotter stuff at the bottom, and when you pull it, you get a higher rise. But I don't know. So it looks like it's probably a more complex, uh, more complex problem than you know than first blush looks at and unfortunately i was i would have talked about it with uh, harold mcgee i spoke to him yesterday but he's kind of in transit he's finished up his whirlwind book tour by the way harold mcgee has a new book out called what's it called the keys to good cooking right yeah keys to good cooking was on was on the new york times bestseller harold mcgee good friend of uh, cooking issues good friend of the blog good friend of ours and um so go buy his book. But anyway, next time I speak to him, which is going to be at the end of the week, I'm going to try and ask him about this because it might be something that he researched in you know in all of the uh, all the stuff that he's been doing recently for his book. But it, it is an interesting question, and you have me uh, a little bit uh, stumped. So anyway, uh, so. That is uh, all of the questions for uh, today, and so I want to uh, – uh, this is a personal plea. If any of you out there have good – and I'm going back to the raw food, raw food challenge. If any of you out there have any suggestions for me, should we write this stuff up on the blog as we do it or no? As- Nastasha doubts that I'm actually going to do it. Nastasha doesn't think that – but not for the reason that you guys out there. You guys out there in Radioland think I'm a welcher, which means that you think I'm a bad, a poor, a low-quality human being, as my son yeah, would say. Yeah, no, I don't think you're a welcher. Well – I just think you have a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, <clears throat> look. The fact of the matter is is that it doesn't matter. Like, it, like a welcher is a welcher. If you say you're going to do something and you don't, then you're a welcher. It doesn't matter if you're too busy because the same way like saying, well, I would pay you, but I don't have the money. No, you're a welcher. You made a bet and you couldn't deliver. So we have to do it, right? Um, the question is, are we going to have the time to write about it? That's the, that's the thing. But I'd like to write about the, ex- the experience of trying to, trying to go raw food. But we're definitely – Then let me write about the experience. Yeah. Well, okay, so uh, for those of you out here, this is a little insight into, into the Cooking Issues team and why we don't write very often on the blog. And the, and the reason is is because I'm a huge jerk, right? And so I have, a, an ex, I have an extremely narrow point of view about 
kind of uh, everything. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm hard to work with when it comes to writing things. Is this true or false? That's true. That's true, uh, including with myself. The only person harder on uh, me is my wife, who's maybe one of the great editors. I mean, you know, maybe not as good as her sister, Miley, my sister-in-law, who runs the Food Network magazine, but pretty, pretty damn good. My wife is a, a vicious editor. Um, but aside from stylistically, which I'm horrible at, you know, um, Content-wise, I'm pretty particular, so uh, I don't know. What would you, would you what would you want to write about? Uh, the experience. The ex- what yeah, do you mean, experience? from from my perspective. See, for well, but like about what? Like it couldn't be. I mean, that's the, the thing, recipes, like, the you know, day one, day two, day three, how we feel. You know, the difference between. Maybe we should start a separate blog because we're not about <laughs> our feelings. <laughs> I know, but I think like, people who, who care cares about, about our, our feelings. feelings. Why would, you listen? You guys tell us, but I don't think anyone cares about my personal feelings about anything. I think they do. I don't think so. I mean, why? Well, I, I don't care about. I, I hardly care about my personal feelings about things. Why should anyone else? You've seen I mean, all that, feelings. What? You've seen all feelings. I've seen all feelings. No, <laughs> the thing is, like, I, like here. Look, here's the thing, and this is maybe I'm going to offend everyone now probably but you know one of the reasons you know i like the, the, my whole issue with blogs is is trying to like strike this balance between um you know serving yourself and serving and serving other people i don't necessarily see the value in saying what what i had for dinner tonight you know what i mean unless it's instructive in some way like I'm not a good enough writer or a good enough photographer where you know <clears throat> I could spin a yarn about what I ate tonight and have it be I think of any use to anyone. You know what I mean? So the the, the question is, you know, how do we do it without becoming self-indulgent? There has to be some sort of learning process, which means, which is really irritating, is that we're going to have to develop some sort of new technique or ingredient having to do with raw food stuff. Nastasha is now banging her head against the microphone. <laughs> Because she knows what this means is she's going to have to go through hell because now we're going to have to come up with some fancy new technique, you know, regarding uh, raw foods or something. Is that is that your yeah. your yeah, worry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, on top of all the other stuff. But uh, you know, if I if I have to languish in testing hell for a month, it's much better than being a welcher. <laughs> this has been cooking issues. We'll come back next week to answer more of your questions. <laughs>